Morning, little church. Welcome. If you're new, if uh, you haven't been here before, we're so glad you're here. I'm Travis. I'm the youth pastor here. And so Jeff, our head pastor, is actually up in Oregon this weekend. So I have the privilege of bringing this morning's message as we enter into Lent, the first Sunday of Lent. Is anybody else excited about Lent? (laughs) Kind of. Not really. We have to give something up. Like I thought, okay, maybe I'm the only one. Some of you are excited. Um, we actually kicked off Lent this past Wednesday. We had a service at 7 a.m. here in the sanctuary. Uh, Beth, Jeff, and Philly led us through just a really quiet, sweet morning where we uh, meditated on what we were entering into, and we got our ashes before we headed off to work or school that day. And uh, it was just a beautiful time, and we actually we called it Coffee and Ashes, which I feel like we should trademark that. I'm like, that is a beautiful slogan. That will sell... Uh, but ironically for me, before the service, I decided that for Lent, I was going to give up coffee. And wasn't wise because I walked in at 7 a.m. on Wednesday and just saw uh, four different types of coffee out here. If you don't know, Alan Van Gundy, who makes our coffee, he like pours his heart and soul into the coffee we get at this church. It's such a gift and it's so good. And I was watching everybody fill up their cups and it was like steaming and looked so good. And I'm sitting there like shaking, like, oh my gosh, all right, first temptation of, uh, of Lent, here we go. And I watched people enter the sanctuary and uh, just sat there and, and didn't have my coffee. And if you're not a coffee person, this might seem trivial. You're probably like, what's the big deal, bro? It's not just coffee. And if you love coffee, you're like, all right, that's like giving something up for 40 days that you love. And I really enjoy and savor my cup of coffee every morning. I, it's just like the favorite part of my day when I'm opening the word, kind of quiet time, enjoying my coffee. And so I decided, okay, what would it look like to just give up something that I love? for these next 40 days, but I didn't think it all the way through because I'm preaching today and I thought about getting up in front of you all decaffeinated, felt like borderline irresponsible, um, like preaching without the Holy Spirit or something like that. Um, not quite that extreme, but, um, and then I learned something this week as I was talking to Jeff about that. I'm like, I'm going to preach without coffee. This is going to be interesting. And he taught me this. And so if there's anything you learned from today's sermon, I have a feeling you might take this away. So 40 days of Lance mimics Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness before he begins his ministry. But Ash Wednesday to Easter is actually 45 days, which means the Sundays leading up to Easter are actually don't technically count uh, in... in <laughs> In Christianity, Sunday is a time of joy and feasting, and so you've just been given a green light. If you're abstaining or holding back from anything during Lent, you can actually enjoy that on Sunday. And so I took that and ran with it. I'm like, yes, that's what I needed to hear. And so I got to enjoy a nice cup of coffee this morning. It was wonderful, and I feel great. So I'm so excited (laughs) to be in front of you all. And, you know, it got me thinking as I was studying Matthew 4 and Mark 1 this week about Jesus' 40 days and and how he fasts. Um, It got me just thinking about the spirit of Lent. It almost feels like another opportunity at resolution. It's like if you failed at your New Year's resolutions, like just six weeks in, you're like, all right, well, we got Lent. I'll just like pick it back up again or I'll start again. Or if you're type A like me, you see it as an opportunity to like get better or self-improve. I'm like a masochist in certain ways. I'm like, how can I like grit through something to get better during this time? But again, as I was studying these passages, it just hit me that that's not what Lent is about at all, actually. Before Jesus begins his ministry, it's not like he he climbs some big mountain through self-determination and will and like overcomes all these obstacles and then preaches the Sermon on the Mount. But he actually enters into the wilderness, stripped bare of everything, no water, no food, where he knows he'll face temptation, 
and yet he leans on God and the scriptures to see him through. Lent is less about doing something to get to God and rather about letting go of things to allow him to reach us. So in this time, in this Lent season, we enter into the sufferings of Christ, not to punish ourselves or to even better ourselves, but to remember how he suffered once for us. And so today I'm going to be talking about waiting and fasting and repentance, all really popular topics to preach a sermon on you. Are you really excited to hear about waiting because everybody loves that? Um, but when I talk about repentance, I think in many ways it can be this loaded kind of word in church. It's, uh, or even outside of church. It, it has like a heavy connotation to it, but really the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which actually means a, a transformation of the heart through the renewing of your mind. It's this um, changing the way you see things, changing the way you experience the world is what metanoia is. It's That's what repentance is. And so as we enter into Lent, it's this time of waiting on the Lord, making space in humility where we can re-examine our life, maybe the things we're attached to or where we're putting our attention towards and change our mind around those things. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So it's in this space of separation that we can focus on him and he changes our mind. Many of you know we took our youth on retreat three weeks ago up into the mountains and just had this amazing experience with the high schoolers here. And when we got up there, I invited them all to hand in their phones on Friday. And you can imagine some of the resistance that uh, that I met with that. But we had this idea that for three days we would um, have a mini Lent, if you will. It would It would be separating ourselves and putting this distraction away. And I didn't do that in, in punishment or that I have anything against technology. And it wasn't so that they would behave better or do something for us, for the leaders, but really it was this invitation of like, what would this weekend look like if we removed some things and allowed God to come in and fill that space? What would it be like to lean on the spirit in new ways or to get um, maybe more acquainted with some boredom or discomfort and see what might happen there? And I think I can speak for everybody that was there that weekend that the Holy Spirit really met us in that place. It was a powerful weekend, and we just experienced an amazing time together, and so much so that the seeds that weekend are are bearing fruit still. Um, Just this past week, we baptized three more students down at Sleepy Hollow, which was just so incredible. It's just amazing to see what the Spirit is doing in our youth and as uh, before baptizing them, and as, as I was explaining the, s- the spiritual significance of baptism, I also encouraged them, because as I studied this passage, when Jesus gets baptized, he immediately goes into the wilderness. It's not that he gets baptized and he starts doing amazing things and starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but right away after he experiences the Spirit, after it descends upon him, he's faced with trial and temptation, which is interesting, Right? It's like God has something great planned for you, and he might be stirring in you spiritually, but before that thing happens, in some ways he's going to test that faith. It's in the wilderness that our faith is tested, where we face temptation and trials of the world. It's in that where we have the opportunity to choose God and trust. In that process, there is renewal and transformation. Like we're being, pre- like we're being prepared for something greater, like we're actually being sharpened for what God has for us. So I invite you to think about this for yourself. Has this been true for you? Where has your faith been tested most? And how have you responded? 
Well, it's, it's really, when I thought about it, it's true throughout all of Scripture. Really, the, the foremost people within our faith all had to face this to some extent. Abraham, before becoming the father of Israel, at 75 years old, is sent into the desert. The Israelites spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering around before they get to the promised land. The Apostle Paul, he uh, has this radical conversion at Damascus. He was persecuting Christians, and then he meets Jesus and has this uh, crazy renewal. But before he goes and starts preaching the gospel, he ends up in Arabia for a couple of years, working out his salvation. King David, who we'll talk about today, after defeating Goliath, has to spend time in the desert hiding out from Saul before he becomes king. And again, we see in the Gospels, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. So I got to thinking about my own journey, and this happened to be true within my own walk, and I thought it was interesting. So I became a believer when I was 26. I felt this powerful moment in church. I had just started kind of attending church on my own, and I felt the Spirit moving in me, and I decided to give my life to the Lord. And those first couple months, I just felt this renewal and this excitement, like I could see the world in new ways, and I was falling in love with Scripture, and I was so excited about my faith. And then I got this job promotion to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of all places. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to Milwaukee, but uh, there's no ocean there. There's no mountains, and it's below freezing for about seven months of the year. So I had no idea what was out there. I didn't know anybody out there, and yet I felt this conviction and um, really like courage to, I need to go see what's out there. God's opening this door for me. And I think like even the people around me, friends or family, were like, are you sure you want to go out there? And I just felt sure that God had something there for me. And if I could be real with you guys, like if I could be honest, I think in my own like self-absorption was like, all right, God, I see what you're doing. You must have my future wife in Wisconsin. Like, (laughs) I'll go. Sounds good. And really had no idea that that's not how God works. He's not leading us to give us exactly what we want, but typically he's leading us somewhere to give us exactly what we need. And I didn't know it at the time that being removed from my regular rhythms of life and, and being placed in a, a new place where I knew no one was actually a place where I was really going to have to truly lean on my faith. Was what happened in my heart and in my soul real? And it was in this time, through the cold, dreary winters in a small apartment in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that I turned to the scriptures and began to fall in love with who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And all the power of scripture started to comfort me and change me. And it was in that place that I ended up finding a small church about half the size of our little church. I was the youngest person there. And before I knew it, I started teaching Sunday school and I I didn't even really know what was happening. I was just leaning into it. There was this amazing family that kind of discipled me. And I didn't know what was happening. It was two long years. And then thank, thank God I got to move back here. But I look back on that time now as a wilderness It was two years of isolation where my faith was being tested, but it was also being sharpened and strengthened. So now that I have the privilege to be at our church, working with our youth, I I realized God was doing something in that time. We'll all experience the wilderness. Every person here has to some extent, whether it's sickness or you lose a job or there's a breakup or a divorce or you lose a loved one. If I were to ask you the times in your life where you grew the most, spiritually, personally, or emotionally, I bet it has to do with something overcoming something difficult, surviving your own wilderness. And so the thought of moving into Lent in 40 days of intentionally entering into this space, talk about countercultural. 
where in today's day and age, we're flooded with luxuries and creature comforts to really avoid any type of suffering at all costs. There's this book that touches on this entire concept called The Comfort Crisis. And Michael Easter writes this. He says, We are living progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. Feels like a pretty harsh critique. But there's some truth to that. We live in a time where we have everything at our fingertips, and yet we're still struggling with meaning and anxiety We live in a time of overstimulation where we avoid the wilderness at all costs. And this idea of waiting or fasting just doesn't seem like relevant to us now. It's almost like fasting is this thing that the old Christians used to do or like those other Christians do. It's not as common in our lives today. And I would argue that we probably need fasting more than ever, abstaining from these distractions and things that sweep up our minds. And if I could just give some examples, go ahead and look around the next time you're at an airport waiting at your gate. What's everyone doing? Everybody's on their phone. It's ubiquitous. Like no one's actually sitting and waiting or talking to the person next to them, or maybe it's a time for prayer or, or reading, but it's everybody's on their phone answering emails or sending texts. If you need something, Amazon, it's there the next day. And even if you're waiting at Starbucks, if the line's longer than five minutes, I was thinking about this, I'm like, anytime there's a long line, you kind of feel this urge to like, okay, I need to pull out my phone. I'm feeling like uncomfortable waiting here, just standing. And then I thought about Starbucks. You don't even have to wait in line anymore. You just, on the app, can just like plug in your order and just avoid the line, avoid talking to a barista, grab your coffee and go, because we don't have time for that. We don't have time to wait anymore. I think this is one of the enemy's great schemes in our modern age to keep us swept up with distracting us, focus on all these little things, focus on all the busyness where we don't actually spend time waiting on him, thinking about him. Thomas Merton says it like this. I just love this in this book that I read recently, No Man is an Island. He says, music is not only pleasing because of the sound, but because of the silence that is in it. Without the alternation of sound and silence, there would be no rhythm. If we strive to be happy by filling all, si- all of the silences of life with sound, productive by turning all of life's leisure into work, and real by turning all of our being into doing, we will only succeed at producing a hell on earth. If we have no silence, God is not heard in our music. So how can we as a church properly enter into a time of silence, of waiting, of fasting, of repentance? If our aim here as Christians in Laguna is to live deep lives of authenticity in Christ, we can look at these next 40 days as an opportunity, really, to turn down the volume on worldly noise and follow Christ into his suffering in new ways. And if we're going to do that, I think the Psalms are really a beautiful place for us to explore. So today's lectionary reading is from Psalm 25, and it's actually a practice I'm incorporating into making space this Lent season is just to read a different psalm every day. There's 150 of them, so there's plenty to choose from. But there's a rawness and a vulnerability to the psalms, these prayers and hymns of crying out to God. David says, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, Lord. Sounds like a guy who's been in the wilderness. And what I love when I think about my time in Wisconsin, in my own wilderness, I found myself connecting to the Psalms. It was like David was an ancient friend of mine, where he was going through the same things I was going through, yet he lived 3,000 years ago. And I felt this connection to him of longing to experience God in new ways. 
And so my hope this morning is that we would drink deeply from these words of David, like it was the first sip of coffee this morning. So we're going to uh, open up to Psalm 25. You actually all have Bibles in front of you in the pews. I would encourage everyone, if you, if you have your own Bible, that's great. If you want to grab one in front of you, Psalm 25 is on page 458. We're going to kind of camp out in this psalm for the rest of our time together. And I'm going to slowly move through it and unpack it, but it might be helpful to follow along in that way. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for every soul that is in this sanctuary right now, Lord. We just come before you. Um, we just ask that you would speak to us clearly through these words, that you would convict us in a way where we might be feeling shame or falling short and pull us into your grace, pull us into light, and show us your love this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this psalm is really written in a time of distress where David is seeking guidance and forgiveness. And scholars speculate it was written later in his life. So this is after David has been through a lot. And so I'll start in verse 1. He says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. I'll pause there because I really want to pull this passage apart. And two words that jumped out to me when studying this that I think is important for us to understand is this first one in verse 3, the word hope. Um, if you're reading it in NIV, it says no one who hopes in you. If you've got a different translation, sometimes this word will be waits. No one who hopes in you or no one who waits on you. And really this is uh, the, actually the same word. It's, it's coming from this Hebrew word kavah, this root word kavah, which does mean to hope. It means to wait. It actually means, maybe most accurately, to eagerly expect, but it's in an active way. It's not passively waiting and just sitting back and just letting things happen to you. It's this active seeking and expecting. And the way that, um, as I did a deep word study on this, the image that was used to describe what kavah really means, it means to be bound together with, to be intertwined. And the image they use is like three strands of a rope being tied together. And so if we take that understanding of the word kavah in its original, in its original Hebrew and plug it back into verse three, it really reads more like no one who binds together their life with you, no one who intertwines their life with you, Lord, will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous or faithless, is the other translation, without cause or reason. And so the other word that I, I want to really get at today that really convicted me is something important for us to understand is this word shame. It's used three times in these two verses. And anytime the Bible is repetitive, it usually is drawing our attention for a reason. There's something here for us to understand. And shame on the surface might mean embarrassment or humiliation or distress or just maybe another form of guilt. It's kind of what I like initially thought shame was until I started reading Brene Brown. Um, if those of you are familiar with Brene, Jeff quotes her often here on Sundays. We're both like big fans of her work because Brene is a leading researcher on three concepts in particular that I think are beautiful for us to understand as Christians. She talks about shame, vulnerability, and courage. Three integral aspects to our Christian walk, three things that are prevalent throughout all the scriptures and she is a modern-day scientist researcher who provides beautiful language around these three things that 
in many ways, she's helping us explain, again, with modern language, what David is talking about 3,000 years ago. And so it's helpful for us to understand and really wrap our heads around what the depth of shame might actually mean in this passage. And Brene says it like this, Based on my research, I believe that there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something that we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. So that's guilt. But I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So this idea, good guilt, really, is an appropriate response to something I've done. I think good guilt can be of God, oftentimes convicting us of maybe when we're outside of his will or where we've made a mistake or missed the mark. God pulls us back into his love, and that's so, so guilt can be a good thing. But shame, however, causes me to feel badly about who I am as a person, apart from what I've done. I try to give two examples of what the voices of guilt for shame feel like. This was helpful for me as I think about kind of how we experience the difference between these two emotions. Guilt is more like, I made a sharp comment or kind of like an inappropriate joke at that dinner party, and you wake up the next morning and you feel bad about it. You're like, that was kind of stupid. Okay, I should probably apologize to that person or repent of that. That was out of line with my character. That's not who I am. Shouldn't have said that. And you, you face it, you address it, and then you move forward. And you let it go. It doesn't phase you. Shame sounds more like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I said that again. I always mess up. I always try to do something like that, and then it just never lands. And the people there, there's no way they could accept me or forgive me or that I could feel worthy in that group of people. Why do I always mess up? Will anybody accept me? Now, that might sound extreme, but I find myself talking to myself that way often. Shame is this undercurrent or feeling like we don't measure up. And Brown would say that this feeling drives many of our destructive behaviors. When we don't feel like we're enough, we rely on these external things to then prove our worth, like needing to achieve, to people please, or maybe it's turning to idols or addictions that might numb this feeling of unworthiness so we don't have to experience it. When I thought more and more about this, it just hit me that shame is of the enemy. There's nothing the enemy wants more than to keep a people loved by God and created in his image, trapped in feelings of unworthiness, to keep us feeling defeated and inferior and projecting that out into other things outside in the world. The reason I think it's from the enemy is because before the fall, there was no shame. In the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis 2.25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were at total union with God in paradise. You could say they were intertwined with him perfectly. And it was after the fall that they felt shame come upon them. They realized their nakedness. They became aware of it and they felt shame. And yet I loved, as I was reading that this week, the first thing God does is he sews garments to cover them as if he doesn't want us to feel that, and yet it's part of our human experience. To continue with Brene Brown, she says, if you, to put, if you were to put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And I think this is important for us to be aware of. In a digitally driven social media culture, this seems to be a way that the enemy will continue to use more than ever to drive us further into shame. 
as we hide behind screens to judge, or maybe it's sitting back in our living room and watching the news and forming opinions about other people without actually talking to them about it, or hanging on to secret addictions and keeping them hidden away so that no one else can see, afraid to reveal the truth of who we actually are or what we really struggle with. And Brown goes on to say, if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't, it can't survive. The anecdote is empathy, is empathy, opening ourselves up to let God shower his grace on us and to let others do the same. Brown suggests that embracing vulnerability, being willing to, be sh- to show up and be seen as we truly are, can counteract feelings of shame. Now, if I could take just a moment to speak directly to the men in the room. Guys, we're not great at this. I know that I'm not. We'd rather perform or achieve or show no signs of weakness in order to prove our worth, that we can do all these things through muscling it out and through our own strength. And yet Paul says that God's grace is sufficient for us. He says, for when I am weak, then he is strong. This is a beautiful paradox and I've come to learn that the most beautiful truths in life tend to be paradoxes. We think if, if only people knew our hidden truth, we'd be unworthy of love. But paradoxically, it's when we expose ourselves honestly, when we are open with our shortcomings, that we can be loved for who we truly are by God and by others. And so how does this play out with somebody like David? I think we think of David as like the guy who overcame Goliath. He's a great king. You might think of the statue of David in Florence. He's like jacked. You're like, yeah, he's like the ultimate image of a man, right? But David also had a dark shadow. Don't talk about this a lot, but David also slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed to cover it up while he tried to keep it all a secret in the meantime. And it was only after God's grace through the prophet Nathan who calls him out of that, who calls him into the openness where David finally acknowledges his sin and shame. And it's in that that he turns back to God in repentance. And that's why David is known as a man after God's own heart. It's that he turns back. And so repentance is really an opportunity to turn our lives back over to God where we're feeling less than. And I I love this quote. It feels really simple as far as an idea of what repentance looks like. This is from St. John Climacus. He He writes, To repent is to look not downwards at my own shortcomings, but upwards at God's love. Not backwards with self-reproach, but forwards with trustfulness. It is to see not what I have failed to be, but what by the grace of Christ I can yet become. And it got me thinking about how does Christ feel about somebody in shame? One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in John 8, where we see a beautiful picture of this with the adulterous woman. These religious leaders catch this woman in the act of adultery, and they throw her into a public area to publicly shame her and humiliate her. And then they try to trap Jesus and ask him what he might do with that. And I just love what Jesus does in this. He he walks over, and he gently gets low while she's on the ground, to almost be low with her, to let her know she's not alone, to relate to her. And he turns back to the men and he says, let he who who is without sin cast the first stone. Almost to say, you are putting her in shame. Don't you know I can see all the shame that you guys are in, that you're projecting onto her? And he's almost saying like, I will get to you later, but right now I'm going to protect her because I'm not going to let her feel this And so the men slowly leave one by one and he turns back to her and he lifts her face and he says, do they condemn you? And she says, no. 
And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus' love calling us higher, calling us to more, saying, I know the shame you're living in. I know the mistakes you're making. I have more for you. Go and leave your life of sin. Feel my love. When our humility meets God's love, then we leave shame behind. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So when we live in a culture in a place like Orange County, I feel like we kind of live in a time where we're always driven to show our best selves and, and give the best possible image of ourselves. I feel that when we live here. I think that's a, a common feeling. It's like um, judging people based off their kind of social media highlights. Maybe it's the car you drive or the house you live in or the job title you have or how we look externally. And if that's the focus of what our value is, it, keeps, it uh, leads us to keep these dark, vulnerable, less than parts of our lives hidden away. But the Psalms say we are beautifully and wonderfully made, made in the image of God. And he didn't make any mistakes when creating you. If you're a parent, I think this is probably how you look at your children. I know when I hang out with the youth, that's how I look at them. I just see them as perfect, even in all their flaws and stuff. I just love who they are. He looks at each of us like this, as children. All parts of you, even the parts that feel less than. I think Paul, David, and Jesus are telling us to bring those parts into the light. So what if this Lent season we lived as children of light here in Laguna Beach, bringing the things of darkness to the forefront of our lives, bringing them into the wilderness as a community together where we could be open with them and show grace to one another? If you're wondering what areas of your life you are hiding, just ask you to think if you're, if you're struggling with shame around maybe it's your singleness or maybe it's about where your marriage is at. Or maybe it's how you're doing or performing in your job. Or maybe parenting. The list could go on and on, but I just want to remind everybody, you're not alone. Everybody here in the sanctuary is carrying something right now. And God has more for us. So let's look to what David says on how we might bring this forward. He says in verse 4, I'll pick it back up there. He goes, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are of old. Can you feel the honesty and humility of David here? He's saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't overcome this shame. I can't overcome my failings on my own. My hope is in you, Lord. I need your help to lead me onto a better path. I can't do this by myself. And I love verse 6 when he says, Remember your great mercy and love, for they are from old. From old can be translated to from eternity. So that's this understanding that God's love is eternal. It's from beginning to end. It's always been and it will always be. God is just love. And so I love this because David doesn't say, Remember all the things I've accomplished. God, remember how I beat Goliath. Remember how I've been a great king. Remember how I've done all of these things for you. No. David, in his humility, says, remember your love for me. 
God loves us not because we are good, but because God is good. And I say that because I don't always feel that way. I don't know if anyone can relate there. I don't always feel that. But I'm going to repeat that one more time, and I'm going to say it directly to every person in here because it's true. God loves you not because you are good, but because God is good. We don't need to prove to be enough because our worth is based on who God is, not on what we do. And don't mishear me here. This doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing. Remember that word kavah is an active participation in this. We aren't lazy, and it's not that we don't make any efforts towards holiness. Jesus says that those who love him will obey and follow his teaching. But I love the way that Dallas Willard says this. This is so helpful. When, when I read it, it says, Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And this distinction was really helpful for me because if I can confess to you all, this has been a great struggle for me in my own walk in shame. Much of my behavior and who I try to be is based off of a, a need to perform that if only I could win more hockey tournaments or get in better shape or read more books so that I can appear smarter or serve more at church, or be a better brother or son, or maybe if I preach a good enough sermon this morning, the people here would love and accept me. And the reality is that that's not true because because of who God is, I and all of you are loved and accepted already. And so if you've walked in here today and feel any type of relation to that feeling of needing to earn love, or maybe you feel like you're falling short in some area, or maybe something happened to you and you're still angry about it. Or maybe you're just doing too much to avoid feeling any of this at all. Well, what are we to do with that feeling? Let's look at what David says in verse 7 through 10. He says, Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. Who keep the demands of his covenant. Well, David in some ways is actually pointing towards Jesus because he might be talking about the Old Covenant, which if you're familiar, obviously the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is the Ten Commandments, and we can't uphold those. Anyone ever told a lie? Yeah. We didn't, uphold the, we didn't uphold the old covenant. But here's the good news. God made a new covenant with us. A promise that he will forgive sin, that he will wipe away every shame and every tear, and he gives eternal life to all those who believe in his son, Jesus. The ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to those who believe in Jesus. That's how that last verse reads. As we look ahead to Good Friday... What happened on the cross appears to be the most shameful moment any person could ever endure. I can't think of anything that would make someone feel more unworthy of love, would make someone feel less than more than what Jesus experienced at the cross. And to make this as vivid as possible, I'm actually going to create the scene and invite you all in in a way that I'm going to speak directly as if it were you, so we could see how this might feel. You are falsely accused betrayed. The mob belittles and taunts you. They spit on you, beat you. They let a criminal go and put you on the cross, even though they know you're innocent, to die openly, 
exposed naked in front of the very people that you love and came to serve. How might that feel? And yet in Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, for the joy set before him, he endured that. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus despises shame. And he wants us to live in joy on the other side of it. In that moment, the most shameful moment in human history, Christ took on all of our shame onto himself. He died and that shame and our sin was buried with him. And on Resurrection Sunday, he rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us, trying to connect with us so that we could see as he sees and feel his love. But when we stay in shame, Christ died for nothing. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so he stares down shame at the cross and says, it is finished. No more. No more space for shame. So there's two things I could get across to us this morning. The first is this. Because he found it worthwhile to die for us, we might find our worth in him. Say that one more time. Because he found it worthwhile to die for us, we are inherently worthy. And the second point I'd like to get across is found here in verse 11. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And this struck me again of David's humility and the way that we should see God's grace is for the sake of his name. When we accept the grace that he's shown us, when we accept the eternal love that he's offered us, it glorifies him for his name. But when we rush around all day in busyness and avoidance and meaningless tasks, running on this treadmill of life, trying to earn our worth in worldly things, we neglect this good news that's offered to us. But when we just surrender to it and let it seep into our lives and penetrate our hearts, it glorifies his name and it also brings us joy. I'm going to call Philly up and I have some questions for us before I close. What things of this world do you turn to for comfort or distraction to avoid maybe your shame or suffering? Would you be willing to give this up for Lent? Is there something you've kept in the dark? Maybe it's a past mistake or a difficult conversation yet to be had. Or maybe it's a hidden habit that nobody knows about. Could you bring it into the light? And where do you try to earn God's love? Or maybe the love of others? How does it feel to know that you are loved already in his son? I know I'm just really excited about this time, honestly. I'm so excited about what's happening at our church I love what's happening here on Sundays, what's happening with our youth on Mondays. I'm so grateful for Philly and worship. And so as we move into the next 40 days of waiting for Easter, let us keep the cross at the forefront of our minds and hearts as we follow Christ into the wilderness together as a community, intertwining our lives with him. We can bring our darkness to the light where there is healing and transformation. And it's not because of anything we have done but because what he has already done for us. Amen.